Hello everyone, this is Word with Dr. Michael David Clay. So I have a friend who is an alcoholic, and he does not miss a beat, as he used to say, going around and telling all that will listen, not only that he's an alcoholic, but that alcohol is bad for you and them. Now, he says that in a very global and overgeneralized way, obviously, as he would not be very discriminate on how it's bad for you or even then the possibility that it may not be in that same general way overall totally bad for you, but that there may be some good aspects to drinking. But his personal experience anecdotally is that for him, alcohol is bad, was bad, is bad. He came from an alcoholic family. It was bad for his father, who was the principal that carried the genetic predisposition, as he would have described it or describes it or would describe it. That set him up, my friend, for alcoholism. And, of course, I will entertain all of that because it's a personal testimony. I will even appreciate his conviction, the degree to which he believes such things to be true. I would even then endorse that for him it is true because it has proven itself such because he's an alcoholic. But I always like to finish conversations with him as much polite and respectful to hear all his arguments with this thought in mind, alcohol is not bad for you, particularly if you're not an alcoholic. Now, yes, you can drink to excess. Yes, it compromises your ability to, at times, make critical decisions that may or may not have more or less life-threatening sort of implications. Uh, overall, alcohol consumption and therein the byproducts of its metabolism being metabolized in your system, not only the effects, active effects, psychoactive effects, but just its long-term impact on liver and kidneys and stomach and predispositions in and of itself, correlations with certain types of cancer, esophageal cancer if you smoke, other compromises to the autoimmune system and autoimmune function are undeniable. And in that sense, I can clearly, totally see my friend's points and perspectives, and he makes a really sound argument. But at the same time, there are some studies that seem to suggest that alcohol can be good for you. It can lower your blood pressure. It can do a number of things. help <laughs> you sleep at night if you don't use it unwisely or it does become abusive or the use of it becomes abusive and then can't stop, becomes then Dependence and therein also known as alcoholism, and then have social, occupational health concerns uh, that go along with it that should stop you from drinking if given rational consideration and thought, but does it? And then again, that's pretty much in a general sort of way how we measure alcohol abuse or use, they don't call it abuse anymore, they call it use, and then used to be formerly known as dependence, now it's moderate to severe use, misuse. I should take a moment to also give a disclaimer about the last podcast. 
I was speaking of body dysmorphia disorders, and uh, not really so specifically to the disorders, but just the principle of body dysmorphia. And I made a statement that it's kind of a half-truth rather than an entire wrong. Uh, Body dysmorphia is a disorder. It was typically so associated with eating disorders, and I believe it's only been in most recent Iterations, (laughs) Iterations, <laughs> editions of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual that it took on its independent sort of nature. But I wanted to correct that because there is such a thing as body dysmorphia disorder. And so it has I, uh, the industry, <laughs> maybe me, I've arrived. I think I knew that, but then at the moment I was speaking of that, I don't know where my brain was, back in the 80s, the 70s, whatever it was. I apologize for that. But in that same sort of a way, I do know this, that if you're not an alcoholic, then it really doesn't matter to the extent or degree that my friend's conviction would take us to a certain conclusion that all alcohol use turns to alcoholism. That's errant, and that is not factual, and that is not true. No matter what you try to use to support that claim, it's just not true. So, with that in mind, Psychology Today, July, August, 2023. Dylan Selterman, Ph.D., who is an associate teaching professor at John Hopkins University in the Department of Psychological and Brain Sciences and a co-host of the podcast, A Bit More Complicated, (laughs) pins this article. Seven reasons to doubt social media hurts teen mental health. Many commentators are convinced that social media usage is to blame for the recent rise in reported mental health concerns among young people, especially teenage girls. But developmental and clinical psychologists, 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 psychologists who actually work with adolescents do not uniformly back this hypothesis. Here's why they and I remain skeptical that social media use is responsible for rising distress. Number one, studies show conflicting results. Some researchers find links between social media use and well-being, while others do not or find mixed results. And some developmental psychologists go as far as to suggest that social media might have positive effects on teen well-being. Number two, the studies vary in quality. Some claim that if there are 30 studies published on a topic and 17 report a correlation, then we can be confident that this correlation exists. I don't buy it. What if those 17 used poor methodology while the other 13 used more reliable techniques? For example, we know that people are not especially accurate in reporting how much time they spend on various activities. So a larger number of studies that have unreliable measures of social media usage shouldn't outweigh a handful of higher quality studies that use more objective measures. Number three. Which came first? Even if there is a link between social media use and mental health, it's not clear which precedes the other. And while it's a cliche to say correlation doesn't equal causation, 
Few believe that depression causes increased social media use and not vice versa. But if may, it may not be such a crazy idea. Some psychologists suggest that teens turn to social media to help cope with negative emotions. We saw this during the COVID lockdowns when physically isolated young people still craved social connection. Some longitudinal studies show that worsening depression predicts more social media usage in teens, but not the other way around. Number four, there's a missing cognitive link. What is it about social media use that would make people feel distressed? Is it social comparison? A more sedentary lifestyle? Sleep disruption? Physical isolation? There's no consensus, so simply pointing a finger at total screen time doesn't help clarify things. Number five, there is no clinical significance. The studies that show a link between social media use and mental health do not suggest an increased risk for mental illness. Example given bipolar disorder. So researchers suggest that digital technologies are unlikely to be of clinical or practical significance. This is an important distinction. Just because someone feels upset does not mean that they have a mental health condition. Number six, social media apps are not a monolith. Does anyone really think Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, LinkedIn, and Reddit all have the same social or psychological properties? Perhaps there was a moment when people on all platforms encountered photos of their friends looking unrealistically happy or beautiful, which caused a type of negative social comparison, especially detrimental for teenagers. But this is no longer the norm. On most platforms, masses of people consume content generated by a relatively small group of creators. Plus, most teenagers don't even use Facebook the platform that's been most extensively researched. And finally, reason number seven. We aren't a mentally health society, mentally healthy society, and we haven't been for a very long time. In North America, depression and distress has, have been rising for 80 years. There is something even researchers who blame social media on a causal factor, as a causal factor, acknowledge. Why weren't people in the 1980s or 90s asking why adolescent depression was at an all-time high? It's not clear, but this trend isn't new, and it's only going to worsen in the absence of major cultural adjustments. We should be talking about common sense reforms of social media apps, but we should refrain from making broader claims or proscriptions in the absence of strong evidence. For example, if we were to restrict young people's digital technology use until they pass through puberty, is there any evidence to suggest it would have a positive effect on their well-being? I remain skeptical.
I believe that poor mental health in teenagers stems from broader societal problems that must be addressed with creative solutions designed to maximize psychological need fulfillment and self-determination. If we create environments and communities in which teens can flourish, then I don't see social media having detrimental effects on a mass scale. Again, seven reasons to doubt social media hurts teen mental health by Dylan Selterman, Ph.D., who is a teaching and associate teaching professor at John Hopkins University in the Department of Psychological and Brain Sciences and also a co-host of the podcast, A Bit More Complicated, to be found in July-August 2023 of Psychology Today. That is the article. So it is true, alcohol does not cause alcoholism. There are a multitude of factors that play into that. Alcohol would, a person would not become an alcoholic. This is a truth, a fact, except that they were drinking alcohol, but not everyone who drinks alcohol turns into an alcoholic. And those other factors somehow come together in confluence in such a way that for certain individuals, more or less, some may have more of those, some may have less of those factors, they turn into alcoholics. And with that, that is individually a consideration, but there's also social factors. And this article, when it comes to social media, seems to suggest the author, uh, Dylan (laughs) Selterman, believes that it is much more the social even than the individual, although he does give credence to the individual. Why do I say maybe more the social? Because you really can't do much necessarily with the individual, at least not in an immediate, imminent sort of context. Over time, possibly you can influence genetics in such a way to change them. Uh, It's called evolution. But it's not something that we think of as maybe to our avail, at least not immediately so. And without any more knowledge than I have possessed on genetic engineering, I'm not sure that anyone is close to that or we'd want them to be at this particular moment ethically, morally, as well as just factually, empirically so. But at the same time, what I do think that the article that I read to you today on the podcast really does speak to the one thing that we do have greater control over, and and that's the social media. Now, is that then, again, an indictment of social media? No. Not everyone is going to drink alcohol and become an alcoholic. Not everyone who drinks alcohol has problems with alcohol. Alcohol itself is not a dangerous drug. It is not a controlled substance. And that would be them believing that those substances that are controlled... Uh, someone has the consensus of someone's has come to have come to the conclusion that you should regulate it and only certain individuals should be given access to it and then only under certain circumstances or conditions. We've not gotten there. We've not gotten there yet with alcohol. We're close to that with tobacco, but even with tobacco, all the evil, so to speak, that goes with tobacco physically, psychologically, emotionally, morally, ethically, societal costs included, we still aren't prohibiting tobacco use. So, 
it's likely then that alcohol is still a good ways off from anything like that. But I think what the author is also speaking to that I probably endorse even more than looking at the broader social picture as the area where we might do better in terms of promoting preventative primary care, secondary care, tertiary care, even after the fact, someone has a disorder or a difficulty identified in terms of behavioral health or mental health or mind health sort of issues, we can do a lot to mitigate that through proper care and treatment. And even should you have a need for tertiary care, after there's unfortunately some progressive dimension or aspect of whatever the mental health or mind health condition is, the behavioral health difficulties are, that this then is following a disease course or a course of disease or with the disease model getting worse in terms of frequency and severity of episodes. You can still do a lot to mitigate that. And we're constantly discovering new ways (laughs) to promote neurotransmitter release uh, that seems to mitigate and restore some chemical balance even when the set point, the homeostatic response that then ties into autoimmune function, core health sort of principles is a little out of kilter for whatever reason. But I also want to just acknowledge that we need to realize, I think, when we're taking a serious look at such things as this, to realize that mental health concerns, mind health concerns in general, there's individuals who have genetic predispositions toward those. We know that. Research has proven that. And with that, then, that should be kind of a common sense approach. You should probably be aware if there's a genetic predisposition and it runs in your family, as they like to say, or as we like to say, and then you start to have symptoms of it, then you probably should put a little bit more energy and effort into it. And with that, then be able to do some remediation, some mitigation, some correction even. Again, maybe it's prevention, primary care. Maybe it's going to fall in that category of secondary or tertiary care, either of those. But it's a good thing to be aware of that and do a little bit more to take care of your mind health, your mental health, including possibly when you start to have problems, difficulties, seeking out psychological services, counseling services, and then finding the help of experts, professionals, whether that be with medications or more the traditional talk therapy, psychotherapy. It's good. It's beneficial. It's helpful. And that's why we do the podcast. That's why I read articles from Psychology Today to promote good mind health, mental health, behavioral health. And should you then already be at a point where you can't prevent it, to give you some ideas or notions of how we care for it and where you might go to look for resources so that you could get the assistance that you need. That too would change your overall society. We'd be socially a lot healthier. Maybe, maybe again, the deterioration, as was noted in the article over the last 80 years of North American citizens' mental health, maybe could have at least been lessened or the progression of that slowed. Maybe we could have corrected that. But we haven't taken that opportunity to do the type of analysis, meta-analysis, as they like to call it in research 
sort of terms, that's necessary to change that. Everything that we do too in the way of promoting good mind health, mental health, or acknowledging difficulties, it should be backed by evidence-based studies and research. And that goes for not only the phenomenon that we're studying, that we're identifying, but the interventions that work best on that. So if you're my friend and you go around telling everybody that alcohol is bad for them because it's going to make all of them alcoholics, that's wrong. And it really does injustice to the fact that there's probably more to be said for genetic predisposition and a deeper dive into that, at least recognition of that as important significance, significant factor, factors, but also just in a general sort of way, our societal cultural attitudes and views as resource or as with resource then promoting more the access to mental health services, maybe doing that in a more general sort of curriculum way of socializing. It starts out as children. Families teaching them. Uh, school, education, uh, doctors, lawyers, <laughs> clergy, uh, neighbors, um, podcasters. Which takes us back to then social media. Yes, there are many social media outlets that tend to distort truth or downright lie to you, like my friend is doing. I, again, I don't question his motives. He's trying to do the world a favor. But he's harming the world because a lot of people are looking at that and saying, well, you're just kind of in a broad brush sort of way, blaming it all on social media. No, there's good news outlets. There's good information outlets that have, again, sound, empirical, scientifically research, evidence-based studies to back them up and theories. And it's good, once again, it's a whole podcast today to at least a central piece of the whole podcast today, to promote good mind health as a preventative measure or even in primary, secondary care sort of ways, even if you're not going to see someone specifically, at least share what we're finding to be helpful and useful. So you can put a strategy together should you choose to address it and get past the denial. If that all is about generating insight, then let's put the stigma on denial rather than the stigma on acknowledgement that we have problems with mental health or mind health. But if you do that in that measure and in that way, then you're probably going to be more likely not to, in some manner, offend people who are of good common sense. And no, you're just beating your drum. And it's the wrong drum to beat. I don't like it when anybody says their way is the only way, but that really is sort of the way that that goes if you don't salt that with science. If you don't salt that with that open-mindedness that allows you to take in feedback and data and learn from it. Tobacco is not good for you long term. Does it kill everybody who smokes? No. Can you smoke tobacco now and then and it not maybe significantly harm you? I say maybe. I, I'm not sure even how to measure that in terms of significance. 
or even how to know if it has or hasn't, I would probably be inclined to say I've never done it, so why would I want to start? Because I could have nicotine addiction somewhere in my genes. And whether it is nicotine specifically, alcohol specifically, or just an addictive personality, I probably want to stay away from those things. But at the same time, you could say that about anything. (laughs) The old Hattie Stewart in moderation. But when you take it to excess... When you take it to a point of use that, or take it to in use, to a point of abuse, and it causes problems, then if you don't stop, you've got an even bigger problem. That is an easy call and should be heeded by everyone, no matter what it is that is the subject of that inquiry or of that kind of speculation. But at the same time, if you hit a joint now and then (laughs) and you find it useful, the THC, and it's not illegal in your state or locality or municipality, and you don't end up having any sort of social or occupational or health concerns related to it, you don't have automobile accidents, you don't have work-related accidents, you don't increase your risk of any sort of disease, malady that gets formed either individually or in combination with other behaviors that go along with it, then have at it. Uh, It's not mine to judge. I wouldn't do it, but that's my personal judgment. But I can acknowledge that. But if you do it and it doesn't create problems, then who am I to say that you shouldn't? But if you're starting to get into trouble, or as with the idea even of it being a gateway, it's not a gateway that marijuana leads to other drugs. The gateway is you give yourself permission to use a substance to alter your state of mind rather than learn, adapt, grow, and not only your ability to cope, but really in the definition of who you are and out of that good self-esteem. I think to me, that's the problem is there's way too many distractions. We're running after quick solutions and answers, just like we're, the article is right, proper, in my opinion, to say, don't be so hasty to blame it on one thing simply because it makes it easier than to make your point that you should stay away from that altogether. No, we need to learn how to apply science. We need to learn how to apply hypothetical reasoning with logic and rationality with feedback, critical thinking included to make good decisions, not only individually, but if you, everyone is learning that and abiding by that and not lying to themselves, then discovery, insight, creativity is good. But you're going to be less likely as well to stay out of denial. You're not going to be able to hide from the truth. You're not going to be able to distort it. You're not going to be able to use opinion as a substitute for fact. Especially if the opine or the opinion isn't based on facts. That's what word is all about. We want to be able to say, at least with the best of intentions, it's based on facts. That's why I did that correction earlier for journalistic integrity ethical integrity, there is a disorder called body dysmorphia disorder. I think I was wrong. I know I was wrong. I don't like to admit that necessarily, but I know I was wrong in the presentation of it. But I also understand that my obligation, if 
there is any bit of confusion out of anything I say is to make correction. When I realize it, you've been corrected. And with that, did it change the, the, the basis or the points of the article? Or not the article, but the podcast based on the article? No, I don't think so. But it was a good disclaimer and a good disclosure, and now you know. Probably knew before. But now you know for sure. But if we all do that, then we'd probably go far to eliminate that prejudice or bias. And it's always subjective prejudice and bias that damns, condemns empiricism, uh, corrupts validity and reliability. It is the killer of science. And we don't want to promote that. Actually, what we want to do is we want to highlight that and teach that as the highest order of thought and consideration, and with that, hopefully, anyone that you see who does what I do for a living, for a profession, is going to be just as faithful and esteem it in such the same manner of way, that you won't have to have any worries. And if they make a mistake, they'll be just as quick to say, oops, oops, I'm sorry, my brain wasn't working when I said that. I apologize. This is the fact. These are the facts. This is the truth. I think that's the answer to good mind health or good mental health in general. And until we arrive there, I do want to encourage you to continue to join us for Word with Dr. Michael David Clay. You can reach me at 304-523-9673. You can email me at drmdclay at thewordhouse.com. You can also find us on Facebook as well as YouTube. See if I all oh, and you can find us online at thewordhouse.com. Should you want to, you can find a plethora, a multitude of vetted providers on the Psychology Today website where they have a directory of uh, various disciplines, but all of them holding, at least singularly so, the credential of being licensed to do this very work psychological counseling, mind health those type of things. And you can look there. In the meantime, until we get that chance to meet again on the next edition, I want to wish you the best of not only overall wellness, but very much so good mind health. And until then, thanks very much.